Welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. You may not have heard that two Supreme Court justices testified before the House Appropriations Subcommittee last week because it didn't get much press coverage. It was a standard budget hearing with Justices Elena Kagan and Samuel Alito asking for increased funding for the court's budget. But it was the first time since 2015 the justices appeared before the committee for this rare, unscripted dialogue. Joining me is constitutional law expert Stephen Vladek, a professor at the University of Texas Law School. So, Steve, Justice Alito referred to himself and Justice Kagan as rookies. How is it decided which justices testify and when? Yeah, I mean, dude, I think it's a bit of a short straw. Um, you know, I think the justices in general aren't necessarily enthusiastic about the prospect of, you know, being open to live, not always scripted questioning on television, on camera. Historically, in the past, it had actually been, you know, a function that Justices Breyer and Kennedy seemed to revel in. I guess we're seeing this new, you know, tag team of Kagan and Alito, perhaps because of Justice Kennedy's departure. Now, one thing that came under scrutiny, the Supreme Court considers itself exempt from the code of conduct that lower courts are bound by. And the lawmakers pressed the justices on this. And Justice Kagan said that the chief justice is considering whether to create a code of conduct for Supreme Court justices. The chief justice is is studying the question of whether to have a code of judicial conduct that's applicable only to the United States Supreme Court. So that's something that we have not discussed as a conference yet and that um, has pros and cons, I'm sure. But uh, but it's something that's um, that's being thought very seriously about. How important is it for the court to have that? Oh, I think it's enormously important, June. I mean, there's a there's a good reason why the Supreme Court historically has viewed itself as being not covered by these statutes, and it has to do with, you know, views about Congress's constitutional power to bind the Supreme Court as opposed to the lower federal courts. But that doesn't mean that the justices shouldn't have their own rules, that they publicize, that they, you know, make every effort to follow, and that when they, you know, somehow run afoul of them, there's some kind of public acknowledgement and inquiry. I think the real question, June, is not whether the court's going to adopt some kind of internal ethics code. And then the real question is, how is it going to be enforced? And, you know, if and when a justice commits an ethical faux pas, um, is there going to be some kind of public accounting? Is there going to be some kind of grievance procedure? You know, it's one thing to say, yes, we'll generally be bound by these rules, but those rules are only going to be as good as the notion that there's some consequence for violating them. Now, Democratic Representative Sanford Bishop cited a 2017 National Law Journal study about the low numbers of minority law clerks. That's come up in prior hearings. Are the justices doing any better in that regard? I think, June, in some respects they are, and in some respects they aren't. I mean, I think um, Justice Kagan pointed out that this term is one of the first times, if not the first time ever, that a majority of the clerks at the Supreme Court have been women. But I think there's still, you know, dramatic underrepresentation on the court of people of color, of women of color, of a whole bunch of other, you know, minority, ethnic, and national origin groups. And I think, you know, the justices are perhaps because of the Kavanaugh confirmation implications and continuing effects increasingly aware of this. I think June, part of the problem is that, and Justice Kagan and Justice Alito, I think, both alluded to this in their testimony, there's still serious problems of underrepresentation among the you know, cadre of law students from whom the justices are hiring their law clerks. And so I think you know, the justices can do better, but the larger story is the law schools have to be doing better as well. 
They appeared before cameras at the hearing, but they still don't <laughs> want cameras filming Supreme Court oral arguments. Something justices often say they're in favor of before they get on the court, then all of a sudden they're not in favor of it. Do their arguments have any weight in this world where everyone has a camera on their phone and you have pictures of everything? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny. I wonder if, if maybe there's some movement publicly about this this view. I mean, the these confirmation flights tend to be the moments when the court is most exposed to public scrutiny. And it might actually be better for everybody if the court was also, you know, more accessible to the public and the more mundane day-to-day stuff it's doing. You know, the concern you always hear from the justices, and we heard this from Justice Alito at the hearing, is that, you know, the presence of television cameras and of you know, sort of live same-day recording would incentivize, you know, grandstanding by lawyers would sort of push people to aim for sound bites as opposed to actually digging on the, you know, the heart of the case. I just have to say, I mean, there are a number of lower federal courts, June, as you know, that do video record their arguments, some of them even live stream their arguments. To my understanding, that's never been a concern anyone's raised in that context. I guess I just worry that, you know, this could be something of a straw man, um, an argument that's being deployed that wouldn't actually come to fruition in practice, and that the cost is access to these recordings on a same-day basis. It seems like there's a compromise that, you know, even if we're not going to move toward video recording at the Supreme Court, we know the court has the capability of releasing same-day audio from oral arguments. You know, I think that could be something we see the court move toward as a matter of course, as opposed to for exceptional cases in the next year or two. But I think it's going to take a majority of the justices, you know, getting over this. And that might be a generational phenomenon before we're going to see cameras in the Supreme Courtroom. And the audio comes out typically on a Friday afternoon, the audio from the whole week. Let's turn to the federal courts in general. Mitch McConnell, Senate Majority Leader, is focused on transforming the judiciary to a more conservative bent. Is there a danger in his apparent rush to confirm judges? I mean, I think there's always a danger, regardless of what your politics are, um, of, you know, of Congress sort of abandoning its traditions in the name of, you know, sort of winning short-term political fights. I think we've seen in the last couple of months some new precedents being set with regard to appellate judges. We saw, June, for the first time ever, a federal judge being confirmed on a tie-breaking vote by the vice president. We've seen the demise of the so-called blue slip policy, where senators from a particular state could block nominees for at least circuit judgeships in their state. And I think, you know, the real question is, what kind of precedent is this going to set going forward? I mean, the next time, you know, the Democrats control the White House and the Senate, are we going to see a similarly radical push to transform the courts in the other direction? Are the courts just going to become a ping pong ball, bouncing back and forth from one partisan extreme to the other? And I guess my concern in the long term is that we need the principled center, What makes the federal courts work best is an array of viewpoints from across the spectrum, including folks in the middle. And the more that we see this kind of approach to judicial confirmations, the more we're going to see what happens to the courts mirroring what's happened in Congress, where we've seen a hollowing out of the center and an increasing push toward both wings. I don't think that's healthy in the long term for the federal courts. Is there any judge you think that has been confirmed that is not qualified to be there? You know, qualifications are, are so much in the eye of the beholder. I mean, I do think if you look at, like, the youngest judges, I mean, just last week, Allison Rushing was confirmed at the age of 37 to the Fourth Circuit. I don't think that, you know, qualifications in that context should be the be-all, end-all. I think the question is, are we really creating a federal bench 
that represents the country at large. And my concern is the more we're pushing to the extremes of either party, the less that's going to be the case in a country that is divided so evenly down the middle. Thanks, Steve. We have to leave it there. That's Steve Vladek, a professor at the University of Texas School of Law. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.